a drill yesterday that was donated for Mexico. So it's yours, right, Mark? <laughs> so I'm sitting on the front row and saw that drill back there. <laughs> he was ready to give it up. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4. So we continue this study through the book of Ephesians, where Paul left us off last week was um, talking about the unity of the body of Christ. And he, as we saw in verse 4 of chapter 4, there's one body, one spirit, you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. So you hear this, one, 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 one. And if that's true, you got to wonder, why is it so difficult to get along with others? Why is it so difficult to be the church? Well, the fact is, although all of those things are true, it's also true that each of us is one. Each of us is an individual. We're all different. And so figuring out how to find unity within the diversity that we have is the real challenge that life presents to us as the church, as the body of Christ. And it's important for us to get this because so often the substitute for finding unity within diversity is to force through conformity for everyone to be the same. This is what the cults do, basically, is brainwash people, and, and you see them, and they're all the same. They talk the same, they look the same, they act the same. That isn't what God wants for the body. He created us with differences. He wants us to be different. He wants us to discover the beauty and the, and the wonder of diversity at the same time finding a unity that's within there. And how he does that, to a great degree, is through spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. So we're going to enter into this morning a section of Ephesians that talks about the gifts. Now right away when you hear about gifts, it can be controversial or difficult or... I mean, as soon as I hear gift, I, because I am a terrible gift giver, and I'm not much better at receiving gifts. It's hard to buy me something, because if I really want something, I just get it. And at the same time, I don't fake it well if I get something that I don't want. I, I remember <laughs> my first birthday after Ann and I got married, she got me a present, and I'm like... Okay, act like you like it, whatever it is. And I opened it up, and she got me these leopard skin silk bikini briefs. <laughs> and I thought, that's perfect. I, I'm cracking up. I'm laughing. I'm going, God has brought me a woman who understands me perfectly. She's, she got me the greatest gag gift ever for me. There's no, and as I laughed for a while and realized that it wasn't supposed to be a gag gift. And, and I tried to explain by saying why there's no way in the world I would ever wear something like that. It, it got us off to a bad start. And now we rarely even try to buy things for each other. <laughs> uh, could we get an usher to get that lady out of here? 
Anyway, her intentions were good. But, <laughs> but that's why, you know, there are certain people who just, there are some people if they get me a gift, I know it's, it's going to be perfect. And, but I'm not that type of person generally who's that way with people. But God, as we see here, he is presented, Jesus is presented as the perfect gift giver. He is the one who, who gives us exactly what we need. And scriptures teach us that he gives each of us something different as a, as a gift and a, or a package of gifts, the uniqueness that we have that prepares us for bringing to the body all the diversity that's ours, but at the same time having it coordinate with the beautiful unity that the body of Christ is supposed to, is supposed to do. Now, in this passage, and I really, it, my initial intention was to do the whole thing through verse 16, because that's really all one thought. It's practically one sentence. But the more I studied it, there's just a lot here. And so I was just, okay, how do I break this down? And so I'm just going to go slowly through the section, and, and it'll take us a few weeks probably to get through it. But this morning, I just want to look at this first section, and, and some of it involves a little bit of discussion in terms of what in the world does this mean, as you'll see. But beginning in verse 7, he, he opens this section by saying, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so a couple of things we see right there. First of all, but to each one. That means that you are not an ungifted one. God doesn't just give gifts to certain people. He doesn't just say, okay, you, I'll give you this gift. But you, you know what? You don't get anything. You get a lump of coal or whatever in your stocking this year. Um, each one of us has gifts, and that's really important because it means that each one of us is prepared uniquely to fit in the body of Christ. There's a place for us. If we haven't found that place yet, the explanation is not, I guess I'm just not gifted. Because each one of us has been given gifts from God, and we'll see this as we go through this section. We also saw it when we were studying in the book of 1 Corinthians, especially in chapter 12, as Paul goes into this and lists the spiritual gifts and talks about them. But to each one of us, grace was given. Now, the gifts of God, the, the spiritual gifts, are gracious gifts. We've already been seeing, he's been making a big point that salvation is a gift. He gives it to us, it's grace. We don't earn it. There isn't anything that we can do to merit it at all. It's simply his grace. And it's important for us to recognize that every gift that God gives us and everything that he does for us is that way. Now, this sometimes we, we get confused here because, first of all, there are some gifts that would seem to be more important than others. Now, when you analyze it more carefully, some of the, some of the seemingly less important gifts, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, are actually more important than you would think. But at the same time, there are certain gifts that, man, what would we do without them? And he, he talks about some of those gifts that we'll get into next week. But what we do so often is we say, we see a person who's incredibly gifted, 
And then we look at somebody else who isn't as gifted, maybe, or is gifted in a different way, and we tend to elevate certain people above other people. So, you know, there are a lot of people, for instance, who are gifted to teach the Word of God. But let's face it, some are more gifted than others. And so we, if, if somebody's really good at it, we put them on a pedestal, we make a big deal about them, we create this star thing around them, they have a bunch of toadies following them around, and they, you know, you just, we build them up and we expect so much from them. And that ignores the fact that they didn't earn it. They're, they aren't something special just because their giftedness is special. It's God's grace. And then so often, when you are the one who is gifted, you begin to look at yourself and you puff yourself up and you begin to think, you know, boy, when God saw me, he recognized my potential. And boy, does he want... And, and so, so often you have people who try to promote themselves. It's important to recognize that when God gifts us, it's purely from grace. So just like our salvation, you can't brag about it, you can't compare yourself to others, you can't get an inferiority complex about it, because every gift is a gracious gift from God. It came for free, nobody deserved it. And he goes on to say, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus Christ is the gift giver, and so he knows what gift we need, what gift the body needs. He also knows which gift would work best for each of us, what, what gifts work with the built-in abilities and, and propensities and everything that we're born with. And he measures it out perfectly. He doesn't goof up. He doesn't make mistakes. Now, sometimes someone will have a particular gift and then they'll also have another gift, and we don't see necessarily how it all goes together at the time. Sometimes our gifts seem to almost conflict. And yet, ultimately, when the picture is all painted, we realize this all fits together perfectly. One of the most difficult things for some people to do is to deal with their seemingly conflicting gifts. They're really gifted in this area, but also in this area, and they don't see how it fits together. But it's Jesus Christ who measures that out. He has a plan that will incorporate everything that you have going for you, and, and he wants to use it all. And you know you're on the right track when it begins to fall together, but he measures it. That means if he doesn't give you opportunities to do much, it's okay. Maybe right now there just isn't much for you to do. But at the same time, if there are lots of opportunities. You have to take that seriously because he must think that you can handle it. He measures it out. He is the one who gives the gifts. It's his responsibility. So with that as kind of a foundation, to remember Jesus is the gift giver. It comes from his grace. He decides who gets which gift, and every one of us has a gift. Now we come into this section that is just weird. And hard for people to explain and to understand. And, and I'll tell you right now, I'll give you my best shot on these next few verses, what they mean. But I am not being dogmatic on it. I don't, frankly, know for sure what he's exactly talking about here. Oh, I know. Don't come and tell me afterwards what it means, because I know more than you do. But <laughs> I, 
But the thing is, it's, there are different perspectives and understandings, and, and, and frankly, the take that I'm going to take with it, although I have support from some, from some good people, it's not something I dreamed up myself, it probably is going to maybe contradict what you've heard taught before on these passages, because it's probably not the majority view. But I want to explain what this means. And here's the passage. We'll just read it through, beginning with verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Make sense? (laughs) Now, to make matters worse, in trying to explain what this passage means, people have come up with throughout church history some pretty wild explanations of what this means. For instance, when it says that he led captivity captive. How do you lead captivity captive? Well, there, are, there has been a tradition within the church, and by the way, a lot of this developed in the Roman Catholic Church, and it goes along with their ideas of purgatory, that after you die, you have to go and suffer some more, and there's still a battle, and you work your way through these stations of suffering, and eventually you might get to actually make it to heaven, which is, is wrong. But they would, people have sprung off from this, and they would say that what, what Paul is talking about here, that he led captivity captive, is talking about when Jesus died, and he, he went down, and as they said, he went into the lower parts of the earth. So they would say, he went into hell, or Abraham's bosom, depending on which version of it you want to take, and he got all those people who from the Old Testament times had believed in him, but they now they weren't yet able to come into the presence of God because Jesus hadn't died yet. He goes down and he announces that, and he leads them in a big parade going from Abraham's bosom up to heaven. Now, I don't have a problem that that happened. At some point, Jesus must have certainly brought people to the presence of God from Abraham's bosom based on Jesus' parable where he talked about Abraham's bosom, assuming that's to be taken literally. So I don't have a problem with this view. What I have a difficulty with is what in the world does that have to do with what he's talking about and gifts in particular? And then I also think that calling people who were in Abraham's bosom and now they're going into the presence of God saying he led captivity captive that doesn't mean a whole lot. That doesn't really connect because they were, they were captive in Abraham's bosom. Eh, that's stretching it. But then to have them be captive in the presence of the Lord, that's a real leap, and it's hard to figure it out. Now, he here in verse 8 is quoting from the Psalms, and turn over with me to Psalm 68, and you'll see some other difficulties that come into play here and sorry if this is a rabbit trail but we're going through the bible and i would just want you to understand those things that that we read psalm 68 david is is giving a psalm of praise to god all the different facets of who god is and it's clear that he's addressing god because he uses every name for god practically that we know 
He calls him Yah or Yahweh, which is that covenant name for God there in verse 4. He calls him Adonai, which is Lord. He calls him God or Elohim. Um, Uses all these different words for God. And then we come, well, in verse 17 of Psalm 68, it says the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. So he's showing this, this military power. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. And then he says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Now, one thing that you might have noticed, comparing verse 18 here to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, is Paul seems to have misquoted Psalm 68. Because when Paul quotes it, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Over in Psalm 68, it says he received gifts among men. Now, that's a, that's a significant change. The two words don't mean the same thing. And so there are people who question the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture just based on the fact that they say Paul misquoted Psalm 68. Well, first of all, let me lay that to rest for you. Paul, first of all, he knew Psalm 68, obviously. He's quoting it. He certainly would have known that he changed one word in his quotation. But remember, too, Psalm 68 was written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 was written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit wants to change a word in something that he wrote, I think it's totally fine for him to do it, and he probably had a really good purpose in it. It's kind of like when, you know, you hate to hear people sing someone else's song and change the words. It just doesn't seem right. But if the guy who wrote the song changes the words, then that's perfectly legitimate. Bob Dylan, who's one of my favorite singers, you go to hear him in concert, he changes the words of every single song every time he does them. But he wrote the songs. He can do that. And the Holy Spirit, if he wants to take something that he said and now give it a different emphasis... That's fine with me. Now, why in the world would he make that kind of a change? Well, here's why. He received gifts and he gave gifts. Who is it that gave gifts? Who, that gives us spiritual gifts? It's Jesus Christ. Who is it who receives those gifts? Us. But Paul in Ephesians is referring to us as the body of Christ. So Jesus is on the one hand, giving the gifts, and at the same time, he's really receiving them. He's the beneficiary because as we are members of his body, we are receiving from him. Okay, does that make, make sense? Now, something else I want to point out to you here that's really important. Jesus is clearly God. This is one of the most powerful scriptures that you can't argue with, and it's one that I'll sometimes bring to those who deny the deity of Christ. Because you go to Psalm 68, who's he talking to? Uh, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. Paul says, talking to Jesus. (laughs) Ooh. So Jesus is God. So what? Well, Jesus is God, and he is the gift giver. We begin to see his qualifications 
for giving gifts. But let's go back to unravel the rest of this stuff because, okay, let me, let me just say, the, the picture that Paul is, is giving us here seems clearly in both passages to be a reference to a practice that they had when they would conquer an enemy. They would parade the enemy down the streets to celebrate their victory, and in doing so, they would take um, plunder and stuff that they, had, that they had won, and they would toss it out to the people. The people who had supported the army, the people who had stayed back to be faithful, plus all the soldiers, they would take the wealth that they achieved from that victory and they would toss it out into the crowd as they paraded the losers down the street. Might seem like a strange tradition to you, but that was something that they would do. And that seems to be the image that, that, that David was drawing on in Psalm 68 and that Paul is probably referring to here. So, if we grant that, who are the captivity that he laid captive? Well, who was it that had us captive? What were we slaves to? We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan and to his lies. We were saved, slaves to this worldly system. Everything that kept us from functioning until he set us free by what he accomplished on the cross, hey, and and he parades it, it was finished. When he died, he defeated Satan. Satan was crushed. Now, he still doesn't know it completely, and he still acts like he's around, but he's as finished as he could possibly be, and that happened when Jesus said, it is finished. Your history, you're done. He's a captive. He is now functioning at God's will, and God has his purposes for him, and he will one day be bound forever. But to me, this seems like what he's referencing to. It makes more sense than making captivity captives be anything other than those that he conquered on the cross. And again, you don't have to agree with me on this. I mean, you could be wrong. And um, <laughs> But now, look at and again, to understand it in context, I think we'll understand it. To take the, one, the traditional understanding of this as being something that happened after Jesus died and down and, and, and then when it says he went into the lower parts of the earth, they have this teaching that he went to hell. Some people, some of the churches actually believe that he had to go suffer, he had to pay a penalty, he had to go fight Satan, you know, in a grudge match and all this kind of stuff. They... They then combine this with another passage that people typically don't understand in 1 Peter 3, where he talks about the, those who are, you know, now he went and preached to those who are in prison and references to Noah and all that. And, and then they combine that to being maybe the people who died in the flood got a second chance to hear the gospel as Jesus went down and preached and, and, and he went to hell. And there are even church creeds that incorporate some of these ideas. Um, I, when I'm interpreting Scripture, if there are several different possible interpretations, one of the rules that I use is I try not to at first go with the kookiest sounding explanation possible if there's a more normal explanation. You know, like Genesis 6, the sons of God, the daughters of men, the Nephilim, 
I try not to go the whole UFO, half demon, half human route and everything at first if, if there's another possible explanation. And that's kind of the way I feel about these passages. But I want to understand them in context because that's the way we get to understand them. So we don't know everything that Jesus did during the three days he was dead. Certainly there were things that he was doing. There were things he had to do. Certainly I have no problem with a part of that being ushering people from Abraham's bosom into the presence of God. But I just don't think this is a clear teaching of it, and I think it just doesn't fit with the context. I don't get the connection, and I've seen people try to connect it. But follow Paul's reasoning here. He's saying everybody has a gift. Those gifts come from Christ. Then he comes up with this quote about ascension to establish that Jesus is God, it was a clear understanding of that as he would present it, and that somehow Jesus ascending is connected to his giving gifts. And now he says, now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he says, okay, Psalm 68 says he ascended. Now he goes, how can God ascend? How can he ever get higher? How can he ever go up? So Paul says the implication is if he ascended, he must have at some point descended. So he had to go down so that he could then be elevated up, right? And that makes sense. He's making this tie-in with Psalm 68 but saying what's missing in Psalm 68 is when did God ever descend so that he could then later ascend? And of course, we know that's Christmas. That's the incarnation when God became flesh. Philippians 2 talks about this. He didn't hang on to the fact that he was God, but he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself by becoming a man, by being a servant, by ultimately dying death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So he has been exalted to an even higher position because of his willingness to become a person. Okay, which brings us to he descended into the lower parts of the earth. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, well, over in... Uh, Actually, you can turn to Psalm 139 if you'd like. You just warmed up and know where Psalms are, middle of your Bible. But Psalm 139 uses an interesting phrase. David's talking about how God always knew him. And he says, Psalm 139, beginning with verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Well, when was he skillfully wrought in the lower parts of the earth? David. The lowest part of the earth he could get to was when he was formed in his mother's womb. That's clearly what he's talking about. Now, I wonder if Paul's using the same terminology. The humblest place on the earth is to be 
a fetus to be, a, to be a, an unborn child. It doesn't get much more primitive than that. And so what if he's using the same language? Does this make sense? He ascended means that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Never used to refer to hell, by the way, but clearly in the scripture used to refer to being on the earth, being in that humble position of being an unborn child. Now, would this make sense? I think it does. Here's why. Basically, what he is depicting here, as I see it, is the two most significant events ever in the history of the world. We celebrate our two biggest holidays, if you don't count Super Bowl Sunday, which I put right in there, but Christmas, when the God of heaven became a man, when he descended to earth, and Easter, when he rose from the dead, he came up and then shortly thereafter went up into heaven. Two huge events. We would be sunk without either one of them. Why did Jesus, why did God have to become a man? He couldn't connect with us, relate to us. He couldn't die for our sins unless he was one of us. One thing God didn't know with everything else that he did know, God did not know what it feels like to be a person. God did not know what it feels like to be tempted. <clears throat> he didn't know what it feels like to be hurt, to be lonely, to be let down and disappointed. That's something that when you're God, you just don't get it. But in a desire to be connected to us, he became one of us. He humbled himself. He descended. He came down just as low as it could be to be a little baby, to be one of us and live the life that we live, tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin. It was critical that he connect to us in that way. Now, the disciples would have loved to have had Jesus just stay here. And I'd love it. It's too bad that we don't get to just talk with them, you know, face to face, walk with them, hang out with them. But he had to leave because there was something that was as important as his dissension was. His ascension was critical as well because he is the one who today is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us sticking up for us, defending us, saying, I died for him, I died for her. He forever liveth to make intercession for us. And it's vital, critical that he do that for us and that he do that from his throne in heaven. He's ascended to the mightiest place ever so that we could bow to him, so that we could depend on him, so that we can trust in him, so that he can continue daily to be our intercessor, our savior, continuously. Now, between the two of those things, I see this is what Paul is talking about. And here's why I think it matters. He's introducing, talking about gifts. Now, who knows best how to give us gifts. And there are two aspects, but Jesus Christ 
is the one who is uniquely qualified in every respect to decide what gifts we need, to give us those talents that are necessary, to place us in the right place for us to function as a body. And here's why. As God, he knows everything, and he has all power, and he's everywhere. So you're talking about a pretty good gift giver right there. But he was the one who had descended and became one of us. And on the basis of that connection, you better believe he remembers what it feels like to be tempted, to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be lonely. He knows what you're going through personally and intimately. And so he really understands the kind of gifts that you need. He really understands the kind of connections that he needs to create in order for the body of Christ to do what the body of Christ does. It's so hard to give gifts to someone who's so different than you that you don't have that connection. I remember several years ago, a lot of the guys from our church, were we went on a motorcycle ride. A lot of us had bikes, and we were out riding. We went on a, just a beautiful ride up to Idlewild, and we, we parked next to a, a little lake, and we were there worshiping the Lord, did a little Bible study, talking. And one of the guys on our ride, a guy named Jerry Ray, who since moved out to Texas, but as we were talking, he had a beautiful Harley, and, and he was a successful guy and just a likable guy, great personality. And it just blew my mind. As we were talking, all of a sudden he goes, you know, it'd be nice if we have on our bikes, if we could find a way that we could actually bless others by doing this. And I go, yeah. And he said, you know, I was homeless for a couple years. I'm like, what? You? He goes, yeah, I was homeless for a couple years. And he goes, I was thinking it'd be really cool if we got all our bikes together and, and we got backpacks and people in the church got backpacks and put stuff in them. And he goes, I'll tell you what homeless people like because this is what I would have appreciated. Like a toothbrush, McDonald's gift certificates, a blanket, some energy bars. And he just went down the list and he knew. I didn't know what a homeless, what a homeless guy would want. He thought of things I would have never thought of. And then I also thought... Isn't it going to be offensive when you know we ride down with these expensive motorcycles into the poor areas of town? Aren't they just going to look down their noses at us? He goes, they're going to love it. He goes, when I was homeless, I had dreams of maybe someday I could get out. Maybe someday I would. And so for me, man, I would see a nice motorcycle and I would be like, oh, it was inspiring. It gave me hope. And I go, okay. And so we started that ministry, and God just blessed it and has as we've continued on in that ministry. But it started because there was a guy who knew what it was like to be homeless, who knew what kind of a gift would matter to somebody who's living in the streets. That's Jesus. He has been where we are. He has been homeless. There isn't anything that we've suffered that he hasn't suffered, and he gets it. And so that gives him a perfect perspective to be the one to give us gifts. But then he's also ascended on high. He's God. He has all the resources of heaven at his disposal. Nothing limits him. 
oh, I might know what would be a great present for someone, but I don't have the ability to deliver. You know, I'd like, I could be like Oprah and just give everyone in here a car this morning, but I'd have to pay for them. General Motors isn't going to donate them to me. And, but see, Jesus, he has that intimate connection, and at the same time, he has that unlimited resource pool, and he's the perfect gift giver. And so as Paul lays this out for us, what he's saying is Jesus Christ is the best person there is to choose your place in the body, to find the gifts that you need and that the body needs, to find a place for you to fit in. And it's hard, it's awkward. We have to experiment a lot. It's not an exact science finding your gifts, but as we go through the passage, he wanted us to know right up front, listen, this is Jesus' job. He's capable, qualified to do it. It was foreseen back in the days of David that there was going to need to be an ascension. And what you could have read between the lines, there needed to be a descension. And he said, we've seen that in Jesus Christ. And so like no one who's ever lived in heaven or on earth, he has run the gamut. He has experienced from Christmas to Easter and beyond. And he knows how to gift us. And so as he, as he winds up this little section and and then we will close he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things earlier in chapter one he talked about the church being the body of christ the fullness of him who fills all in all earlier in chapter four he had said there's one god who is above all through all and in you all this word fill and fullness is used constantly through this book. The word pleroma, it's a word that means complete package. Everything is there, everything that's necessary. And what he is saying is, as God works through his gifts in us, among us, as he works with the body, as we find out and discover our divine calling, and we fit into what he has called us to do, then what happens is there's a fullness, there's a completion. We can then become closer and closer to the total package that God wants us to be, experiencing everything that he has for us, that he might fill all things, that he might complete everything. As we continue in this passage, we're going to see next week what the whole point of the church is, really, how gifts actually work and how, how a church is supposed to help others to advance in their belonging sense in the body of Christ and, and beyond. Just a lot of great stuff here. But I, I felt like we needed to devote this time to this thing because Paul put it in there because it's important. And it's not just some weird passage. It, it proves vitally that our gift giver is the perfect gift giver, that he knows what he's doing. When he gives us those gifts, those gracious expressions that make each of us unique and different, maybe other people around you so far don't appreciate how different you are, but God does, made you that way. And there's a place where you fit because of his grace. Let's pray. 
Lord, how grateful we are for you as our perfect gift giver. You know us best, and you know all of eternity best. And that makes you uniquely qualified. And so we just acknowledge, Lord, that we want whatever you have for us. Whatever gifts you want working in our lives, we are willing. Whatever ministries and callings you have for us, Lord, we just want to find that place and perform that function that you've designed because you know what you're doing. Lord, there are some people here who are just struggling because they don't know where they belong. I pray that as we study through this passage, you will begin to reveal to them their place. There are other people here who are trying desperately to be in a place that they're not supposed to be, striving to be something they aren't. Lord, help them to know, by your grace, you know what's best. Help each of us to just receive your will and your calling. God, help us not to try to do more, but help us not to ever settle for less than your perfect will in using us in ministry. So God, thank you for the truth of your word. We trust you. How could we not? You're so capable. You're so qualified. Teach us as we continue going through this this great book of Ephesians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.